Today's TribCast is sponsored by Power On Music. Leading experts in the Texas film, music, and interactive industries will be discussing the state's economic development and creative industries. Sign up to attend this free conference held on October 19th at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Learn more at power.tamucc.edu. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are in Texas guys talking. Hello, this is Sam Gwynn, a.k.a. S.C. Gwynn, author of The Perfect Pass, a book about how a Texas coach completely transformed the game of football. Enjoy this week's TribCast, and now here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TribCast for the first week of October. I'm joined by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Morning. And our brand new urban affairs reporter, Brandon Formby. Good morning. He's a, Brandon's a little bit upset about the special guest who's joining us for this morning's <laughs> TribCast. Yeah, I'm not a fan of clowns. Yeah, this is, yeah he doesn't look as good on radio. Is anyone a fan of it's a clown mask we've named Evan. No, no one's a fan. Yeah, yeah right. This is Evan Smith. He's he's uh, You thought he was missing from this week's TribCast. He's actually in the center of the table here. Um, all right, I want to start off by talking about um, Trump's latest round of public uh, woman bashing uh, and how that plays in Texas. Obviously, after last week's debate, uh, all this talk about um, fat shaming and um, the the Miss Universe who he had, you know, called Miss Piggy and said, you know, called her Miss Housekeeping. How is all of this playing, if at all, with women in Texas? Sure. Well, we had a story on this this morning, and I think that, you know, uh, what really brought to light his history of derogatory comments was uh, last week in the fallout from the first presidential debate. Um, he continued to attack this former Miss Universe, uh, Machado, and um, that continued to, uh, you know, draw attention to the fact that he has a history of pretty uh, coarse language, at the very least, when it comes to women who he's worked with or women who've come across him in professional and um, various pathways in life. And so I think we, we tried to look at, you know, you know, among Republican women in Texas, Republican-leaning women in Texas, you know, how is this playing and why would it even matter in a state like Texas, which is probably going to elect or choose Donald Trump in November? And, you know, speaking to political analysts and, and different pollsters and, and, you know, even speaking to uh, Democrats and, 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 you know, even longtime Republicans, I think there was clear that there's some unease with his comments and, and why it wouldn't matter in a state like Texas is because, uh, you know, women, specifically suburban college-educated white women in Texas really are one of the increasingly uh, kind of swing demographics in the state. And so, you know, as, as one person put it to me, if the Democrats in Texas ever have a chance of coming back, it's not necessarily, you know, uh, you know, trying to, uh, well, certainly part of it is trying to generate more turnout among minority groups, African-Americans, Hispanics. Um, but really, a lot of the focus is going to be on gaining ground with that, that kind of demographic. And so I think that when you see uh, Trump making these remarks that that's not playing well uh, among at least some suburban white women in Texas. And again, that could have an impact on this election cycle or election cycles to come um, because of how increasingly up for grabs some people view them. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it's been interesting that a lot of the conversation even around Trump reaching out to minority groups is not really because he has a chance of turning those minority voters. Yeah, Yeah, it's to prove to white suburban women that he's not racist or that they can support a candidate. You know, know, the, The Democrats are trying to do, they're trying to peel away a key 
Republican constituency, you know, and that's, you know, the women um, that are uncomfortable or might be uncomfortable with with the candidate. This is, you know, reminiscent in a lot of ways of a race for Texas governor, you know, almost 30 years ago when Ann Richards was running against Clady Williams and Republican women were in the position of having to explain why Clady Williams rape joke and some other things that he said during that campaign um, didn't bother them. You know, oh, I hear that kind of thing all the time. And some of the comments in, in Patrick's story echoed some of the comments then. The Democrats are just trying to take women away from Trump, and they're not going to win in Texas until they take away some Republican constituencies. This is the this is the one that seems most available right now. Yeah. now a reminder, if you're tuning in on Facebook, that you can send questions our way. Uh, I mean, so what do these Republican women actually say? I mean, when you approach them and say, okay, so how can you continue to support this man who is, you know, talking sure. about these body image issues? You know, what, I mean, not just Republican women. I, I mean, you know, how does anybody justify this? Sure, well, you should know that there are some very prominent uh, Republican female Republicans uh, Republican, Republican female, female Republican. activists yeah. um, that are, that are supporting Republican. Donald Trump in Texas and actively involved in his campaign. The statewide right. leadership team, the most recent version of which came out, the vice chair is uh, Tony Ann Dashiell, who's the Republican National Committee woman from Texas. Um, and there are a number of other prominent female activists involved in his, his campaign here in the state. So it's not like there's a deficit of the political establishment that's helping him out um, here in the state. There's certainly uh, some very fierce uh, defenders that he has in the state, as you probably saw in the story. And you asked them. She's one of them, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And you ask them, you know, what do you make of these comments and what do you make of supposedly his problems with women? And they're, they're you know, like a lot of Trump supporters, they're very skeptical <laughs> of what the polls are showing. Um, they, you know, believe that it's a narrative concocted by Democrats and the media. The media. You know, but I think... Because we love to write about <laughs> fat women. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, if you, if you push them a little more beyond that, and you saw that a little bit in the story, you spoke to Tony Ann Dashiell about this. She said, you know, most women recognize that there are two sides of Donald Trump. One is this kind of, like, tell it like it is, bluntly spoken persona, public persona. And then behind the scenes, he's more compassionate. And he's, you know, someone who treats women with respect in some ways. And they're able to kind of, uh, I guess, maybe not reconcile those two sides, but understand that there are two sides. And uh, maybe that's how they're processing some of these comments. Um, but, you know, no one I spoke to had who was a Trump supporter had a very straightforward, clean response for how do you defend, um, you know, specifically the most recent comments about the former Miss Universe. It's yeah. kind of an admission in a nutshell. You know, if you say, you know, the well, the Donald Trump you see is, you know, this brash, unacceptable attitude toward women, but in secret, he's really nice to women. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a pretty good description of the problem. Even yeah. if he is in secret, pretty nice to women, it's the public face that everybody else sees and judges him on. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, you know, former comptroller Susan Combs was on my right. uh, panel at TribFest about, you know, whether Texas was good for women and, you know, asked repeatedly, she sort of couldn't, you know, defend this behavior only to say that she just thought Hillary Clinton was so much worse of an option for, you know, the nation. Uh, we did see a really interesting and quite public uh, Facebook post from a GOP operative uh, Eric Burse this week um, saying, what? He was a, he's a speechwriter for uh, Rick Perry, um, and you know worked in the Perry administration, you know way back, um, and has a daughter, and had a Facebook post that said, you know, it's, um, essentially that it's you know very very hard to support a candidate who um, um, talks about women in this way, and and included in his post a Hillary Clinton ad of little girls looking in the mirror while Donald Trump's words played over it. Right. I mean, didn't he certainly didn't call it an endorsement, but to, for a GOP operative to be promoting right. a Hillary Clinton ad on social media is, you know, I thought was a pretty huge signal. So, I mean, how does Trump keep falling into this trap? Like, how do you not avoid saying terrible things about women or doubling down on this? I mean, or firing off tweets at 
three o'clock in the morning, you know. He seems to be the same, you know, I mean, this seems to be a consistent part of Donald Trump. He seems to have always been this way. If you look at the at current stuff from last week, you see all of this. If you look at stuff from 20 years ago, you see the same thing. It, this seems to be, you He's know. not changing. He's right. never changing. Right. Right. <laughs> we have a, a question from uh, Vlad on Facebook. Why haven't, hasn't the Trump-Pence ticket been able to make more headway against Clinton with women, given Bill Clinton's sordid history with women and this his he accuses Hillary of basically being complicit in covering it up. Sunday night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. tune in Sunday night. It yeah. seems like they've been telegraphing they could bring that up Sunday night. Um, I, I'm not personally convinced that that's going to help them make inroads with women, but you know I think we have to wait and see um, for them to make their first kind of strategic strike on that front. They've kind of been you know nibbling around the edges of that issue, kind of teasing it, bringing it up, but not bringing it up. Um, the the so, moment you bring up uh, the moment you bring up Clinton's sordid history with women is the moment you bring up Donald Trump's sordid yeah. history with women. I mean, I you know. Neither of these guys has a reputation right. <laughs> for the, the being, ri- yeah, honoring their vows. The risk of it is that, you know, um, you're going to be, you know, the, the risk of it, if it goes wrong, is that Trump would be seen as attacking the wife of a philanderer for the philanderer. Um, and I, I don't see how that yeah. makes women happy voters. You know, I don't see how that comes around. On the other hand, there's this line that they've been pursuing, the, the Trump campaign, that she was somehow complicit in... Um, putting the lid on all of the bimbo eruptions in the Clinton administration and in the run-up to the Clinton administration in 91 and 92. Um, bimbo eruptions. Evan would say that's a good name. <laughs> right. yeah. 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 I mean, it goes to the, the what I think is the heart of Donald Trump's candidacy. There are so few issues on which he can effectively prosecute Hillary Clinton where he doesn't have his own vulnerabilities. Right. Even his false suggestion that uh, the former Miss Universe started in a sex tape. Donald Trump started in a, a, you know, yeah, had a, a minor Playboy role in a Playboy tape. video. Yeah, it's like, right. There's so few issues where he can go at them without something coming back that. in his direction. <laughs> I went and watched it. It's, yeah, he um, cracked a bottle of champagne yeah, on, a, on a limo. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good times. Good times. I said that like I knew about the video before it was in the news cycle. But I, just, I, I only looked it up. I afterwards. just confessed that I watched it. It's on your it. favorites list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Speaking of clowns. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'll be here all week. Uh, let's talk about what the hell is going on in Texas and in the nation. I, I mean, I've been doing just a little bit of reading about it. What is this clown scare going on everywhere? I have no idea. But it's well. Freaky. We invited you here for and a reason. I, no, like, I, I, I mean, obviously they're trying. Whatever's going on, they're trying to freak people out. Uh, Who's they? But, I mean, yeah, I they are winning. winning. <laughs> oh no, they're definitely them, winning. The people I in would, the clown mask. I mean, well, all right. So set the stage for us. What's going on around the state? Is it a fa- there's these things? creepy clown sightings? Um, not just. I mean, yeah, it is all over the state, but it's it's all over the country. This has kind of been going on like sporadically for a couple years. Um, I think the first time I heard about it, like there was a clown in this little village in uh, England that would just like show up at night. This and sounds be, like, like tell us a scary story. <laughs> standing <laughs> like you know, like near the woods with just like balloons, just standing there staring down people. Um, but this week, it's just kind of exploded all over the state. It's got to be um, copycat, mostly, right? Oh, yeah. And how much of this is, like, just teenagers, you know, trying oh, to Oh, jump- it's probably completely teenagers who are going to get... There's no glory, though. I mean, you don't, you don't get your name in the paper. You have a clown mask on. Yeah, <laughs> no one identifies you. I mean, so what are uh, – there has been actually, like, a response. I mean, school districts have been reacting. Oh, yeah, they've been, right. like, locking schools down, um, sending warnings out to parents. 
uh, everything like that. How you know? Is there a lot of stuff that has been illegal or dangerous, or is this more? Wow, this is creepy. I don't Keep think the kids there's anything it, illegal or? or dangerous about dressing up like a clown. There should be. I'd be fine with. <laughs> I'd be fine with that law. <laughs> so, but I mean, have any of these clowns like done something criminal, or is it just spooky? No, just spooky. Just, so then what's the just problem? Creeping, just creeping <laughs> people oh, out. Uh, I'm actually getting an update from uh, Bobby Blanchard that a clown has attacked someone at Texas State. Texas State police say the suspect grabbed the victim, but the victim was able to get away and left the area. Well, so, so yeah, that's serious. Yeah, so that's yeah. serious. That's actually like an assault. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think for national security reasons, we should like the laughing goes silent. Like a moratorium on all clowns now, obviously. Clearly. Well, will there be any policy implications for this, or is this just totally I'm upset with a straight face. Come on. I'm surprised that Abbott hasn't called a special session. At least an emergency item. Well, you know, to know where he is. You know, this Ross is, is about to say something serious. You know, this is a serious thing. If people are attacking or people are getting attacked, you know, you can't obviously regulate clown masks, you know, because they'll just switch and wear Richard Nixon masks. Um, you know, the... Um, I don't know how you get at it, but if it can, you know, if you're if you're getting kids attacked and if you're getting people attacked at colleges, and you know, if that's actually a thing, I'm sure the legislature will do something. It'll be but, interesting to watch. But aren't good clowns getting lumped in with bad here? I mean, <laughs> there are no good clowns. What are you? There's no good clowns. What if you're like a party clown? At, Come on, you Ronald know? McDonald. No. Right. Nothing, None. huh? None. You're one of those. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, this sounds like a serious Texas. Um, you know, Brandon had issues ish- with that. Oh, he does. He's been very perturbed about this mask being yeah. here. We're going to find out at the end of the day that Brandon actually is the clown. Um, I believe that our social media manager, Bobby Blanchard, picked up that clown. So if you are looking for a suspect in the Texas state attack, you probably know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Let's transition back to November. Uh, I want to get a sense from y'all about about what races we're seeing that are particularly competitive for November and where there aren't particularly competitive races, what some of the issues are that, that you all are tracking around the state. You know, the the quick 30,000-foot thing is there's 36 congressional seats in Texas. One is competitive. It's that CD23 district. Mm-hmm. Pete Gallego is the challenger and the former incumbent um, in a rematch against the guy who beat him, Will Hurd, who's now a congressman from San Antonio. Um, that's the only competitive one in the state. It's one of the most competitive races in the country. Well, let's uh, actually talk about that race for a couple minutes because I am curious. There have been some high-profile endorsements in that race. Uh, there have been some folks campaigning. Uh, you've been tracking this race, right? Sure, yeah. In terms of endorsements, just yesterday, Vice President Joe Biden endorsed Pete Gallego, the Democrat in that race. Is that like any surprise? Um, I mean, of co- wouldn't he, of yeah, course? Not a surprise, yeah. but he doesn't endorse everybody, right. uh, obviously. Um, and then uh, Will Hurd has gotten support, uh, you know, obviously from the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, who's going to travel to the state later this month to campaign for him. He's gotten support from John Kasich, the former presidential candidate. Governor Greg Abbott's also been involved in uh, his campaign as well. What I think is the the story right now is that um, you're continuing to see at serious ad spending from outside groups in that district. You're continuing to see big time, big name endorsements, which you know shows that it continues to be competitive in the in the view of party leaders and the view of party operatives. I mean, this is certainly the period in these congressional races when groups, if they don't see a good opportunity, they start pulling the plug. You know, this is when they go off the air or whatnot. And right. from all, everything we can see. They, they continue to advertise. They continue to uh, fight it out. And it looks like it's going to be, you know, a real fight to the finish line at this point, at least. Mm. So the, the tradition in this district is that in presidential years, it goes left mm-hmm. and in non-presidential years, it goes right. Right. Yep. Correct. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's done that. It's done that for a decade. <laughs> yeah. It's gone back and forth. You know, so Pete Gallego is favored in that regard, mm-hmm. you know, and in some ways, Wilhurt is ironically 
as an incumbent, somewhat of the underdog in that regard, if you fit it into the historical right. trends of the district. Right. You know? And so did these kinds of endorsements or do these folks traveling for that district make any big difference? I mean, and a lot of people uh, traveling for her in particular are not obviously big Trump fans. I mean, they're they're yeah. sort of out there dis- in, in spite of or despite Trump. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Pete Geiger from the beginning has wanted to make this race, uh, you know, kind of a referendum on Trump, tried to tie Gallego or tried to tie her to Trump. Heard currently right. doesn't support Trump. Doesn't look like he's going to do it before <laughs> election right. day. He doesn't yeah. not support Trump. He's just he's, he's just, just running from that question, right? Yeah, I mean, but as of right now, he effect yeah he effectively hasn't endorsed um, Donald Trump, and so I mean, we'll see how that dynamic plays out. I mean, it's just a massive district, a lot of different constituencies. Uh, one issue we've written about is uh, veterans. Obviously, you have a lot of military installations in the district. You have parts of San Antonio, the outskirts of El Paso. That's been a, a huge issue, and that's been one of the probably the main themes in the advertising and some of the daily fights that we've seen in the race. Does Hurd's experience in the CIA play into that at all, or are those really two? He's certainly issues? using that. You know, yeah. he's certainly yeah. been using that to talk up his national security credentials, and right. even you know, in some ways, his ability to uh, sympathize or work with veterans. Mm-hmm. He's in a lot of ways the best candidate the Republicans have had in the seat for a long time, and you yeah. know, some of the San Antonio Republicans who have either um, quietly supported Gallego and a couple of other Democrats along the way uh, this time are not sitting out and are actually, you know involved in and, and helping Hurd's campaign. So, you know, Hurd's probably got a better shot in a presidential year than any Republican candidate has had. And he's certainly getting air support from above. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, back to then uh, the legislative races. So we know there's really only one congressional race that's of any interest. Brandon, what what races are you watching in uh, North Texas? Um, there's, there's four in uh, Dallas County that, um, I mean, relatively speaking, could be competitive. Um, it's, uh, you know, Linda Coopseat in 102, Rondi Anderson in 105, Kenneth Sheets in 107, uh, and Cindy Burkett in uh, 113. Because um, they're all, you know, kind of drawn for Republicans, but Dallas County is a very Democratic county. Um, so a couple of those could be really close. Uh, so far, all the uh, incumbents, though, are, are outspending. Um, their challengers and Burkett, especially, she's raised um, like through July, like almost three quarters of a million dollars, wow. uh, and her opponent only had like around like twenty six thousand. So, so, I mean, uh, is there are those similar to the sort of the CD thirty three? Ra- 33? 23. 23. Are those um, similar in that, like, they tend to swing one way or the other based on, you know, based on a presidential year, or is it just the districts are drawn pretty Republican and it's a toss up any year? In recent years, it's they tend to get closer to right. you know going Democratic <laughs> yeah. without actually swinging yeah. Democratic. Um, but then they've also been redrawn, you know, because of that. Um, they were redrawn, you know, to be more Republican friendly. One hundred five is like perfect example. In oh eight, uh, Linda Harper Brown held that district um, and won by nineteen votes. I mean, the Democrats were twenty votes away from not just taking that district, but uh, was that before or after her Mercedes scandal? This was before the Mercedes scandal. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, they were – and the, the, um, her challenger then didn't have any Democratic establishment help. Um, right. If they'd, if, they'd, if they'd thrown a dollar at him or knocked on yeah. six more doors, you yeah. Know, yeah. they would have they – actually, you know, that was one of those for one of a nail things. They would have won the House that year. And if they won the House that year, mm-hmm. they would have elected a speaker that year. And that's like an alternate history. Yeah. Um, so what other uh, so those are the races obviously you're following and and any like writing on the wall about whether any of those seats are likely to flip or is it still just you know I think they're all worried about what's going on at the top of the ballot you know yeah, this right. is one of those things where you know depends on the mood of the voters there's a 
big straight voting um, uh, history and tradition in Dallas County. And if, you know, if you're a Republican and you're counting on someone strong at the top of the ballot, whether it's a presidential candidate or a John Cornyn or a Ted Cruz, none of that's there for you this year. Right. You're, you're flying under Donald Trump. Are those folks endorsing at all? I mean, are, are we seeing legislative candidates be pretty careful about tossing around presidential endorsements as a result? Or? I, yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Just don't say the names out loud, right? Um, right. But, but, you know, Sheets and Burkett, uh, to a lesser extent, but still, still there. Anderson um, have been—I mean—they're battle-hardened. They, these have been tough districts for a long time. Every two years, they have to get out and really get to work. And they're not the kind of candidates you're going to surprise. You know, there's other places in the state where somebody might sneak up and, you know, a little bunny foo-foo bop somebody on the head, but um, it's not going to happen in the Dallas races. Good, good reference. Uh, if you're if you're tuning in on Facebook, just a reminder that you can send questions our way. So, what are the other outside of Dallas? What are the other uh, races that we are watching legislatively? San Antonio, right? Um, John Lujan. Uh, I think that maybe we're probably one of the most competitive in the state as far as just the dynamics of the district. Yeah, and by the numbers, he's yeah. by the numbers, he's in bad shape. And he's, so, what are the he's di- a Republican the who won a special election in a district that votes, you know, like six for Democrats by 16 points in, in statewide races. Except so, that San Antonio has been so complicated lately. A, but this is such a strong Democratic district yeah. that um, Lujan's got an uphill fight. You know, he may win it. He won the special yeah. election and wasn't expected to. Um, and Republicans were so proud of that victory when it happened. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you recall, even back at the state convention, Tom Meckler, the state party chairman, was he was campaigning for a permanent re-election as state party chairman on that win. That was one of his central parts of his pitches to, to delegates was we helped get John Lujan elected. So they were very proud of that win. And, yeah. you know, I think he's a, you know he's in serious danger just given the, the, the dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Ross, you've said a lot like this election is going to be less about horse races and more about sort of the, the overarching trends you're seeing in these districts. I mean, what are some of the trends that you're watching? What should we be looking out for? Well, you know, I think a lot of voters are, you know, sort of quietly finding out that um, they don't really have much say this time. You know, that you you can be, whether you're happy with or upset with the Texas legislature and the Texas congressional delegation, there's not really much you can do as a voter to change it. The maps are the maps. And, you know, they've been drawn to favor the people who are in them now, the incumbent parties, and, you know, to a lesser but significant extent, the incumbent personalities, you're pretty much going to get the same delegation back and the same legislature back, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And, and your ability to really influence this is pretty small. Whether that turns into an effort to get you know redistricting back in the hands of voters, as it has in other states or not, um, kind of remains to be seen. But it's an election where we're not going to really see much change. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Edgar Walters, our colleague, had just a really um, fascinating and horrific story yesterday about how many of the kids who are at most at risk in Texas of, of you know physical and sexual abuse are not being seen by caseworkers. I think you know the stats were on any given day uh, in the last six months there were nearly a thousand um, of the highest risk kids who in state investigators had not seen at all, and there were nearly two thousand in sort of the second tier, slightly less at risk, uh, who hadn't been seen either. You know, I mean, it's like uh, these are unbelievable figures for a state agency that, for lack of a better term, has just been effed in in recent years. I mean, what is going on here? Well, I think the the underlying problem here is that the legislature won't put up the money. You know, Charles Smith was on stage at TripFest, the executive commissioner of the Health and Human Services Commission, with a bunch of other agency chiefs in a in a thing we did over there and, you know, said, what do you need? You know, he's getting clear instructions from the people in the pink building to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. No more kids in trouble, no more kids in danger like this. And, you know, what's that going to take? And his answer was eleven to 1,300 new employees and $400 million. 
And the implication was pretty clearly, if I don't get that, I can't do this. And the legislature has been in kind of a slow roll on this for decades, where the agency chiefs come in and they say, we need this in order to get done the things that you are requiring us to do and the things that you want done. The legislature short sheets them and then screams at them when they come in short of the goal. Uh, this is one of those things where, you know, I'm going to take the side of the bureaucrats on this one. The, the legislature hadn't been willing to put up the money, and the legislature deserves the blame for the kids who are in trouble. Mm -hmm. I mean, the legislature has repeatedly said, you know, there may be other ways to solve this problem, other ways to skin this cat, you know, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's a, this is a numbers game. It's kids sleeping in hallways is like the least of it. You know, yeah, they've got kids right. sleeping in office buildings, you know, because they don't have a foster home for the night. And, uh, I mean, they've got blood and, on their and, hands and as now, far as I'm concerned. And now we're talking <laughs> about, now we're talking I mean, about kids these who are, these are thousands of kids. not just in unfortunate positions but in actual danger uh, serious it's not imminent yeah danger. imminent danger sexual yeah, danger right sexual now. abuse right that aren't being right. yeah looked at. and we're talking about clown masks i mean it's not you know i mean well, if you're talking about <laughs> well seriously if you're talking about kids in trouble and you're talking about well these people are rampaging with clown masks well you've got this government that's not doing right by these kids which is a worse problem which is a bigger problem why don't they solve it well and i would like to lift the veil on the sort of behind the scenes you know politics of this so right. you know we write this story and within a couple minutes we have a, a follow up email from the folks at child protective services saying could you please include a statement in your story that says that governor abbott has given us direction you know to address this issue and that you know basically he's on top of it and we thought about including this statement and then i was like well why don't we let's just wait for the actual statement from the governor's office. He was governor and, two years ago. Why wasn't he in front of this? Right. And the governor's statement was almost word for word the same statement that right. we received from inside the Child Welfare Agency asking us to basically defend the governor. So, you know, the politics of this is really like Abbott wants to be clear that he has not fallen down on the job, that he's on top of this. He apparently is even directing the agency to be clear that he hasn't fallen down on the job on they, this. They need to put up the money and the resources and get those kids out of danger, and then they can take credit. Right. As long as the kids are in danger, you know, this whole icing the cake thing is just PR. Right. We have a, a question, another question from Vlad. Thankfully, we have Vlad watching today to ask us all these great <laughs> questions. Isn't it accurate? Who's this to, Vlad? Yeah. Isn't it accurate to say that CPS reform and criminal justice reform, mental health reform, all sort of go hand-in-hand hand, can't really be solved individually. I'd say that's a pretty fair and thoughtful assessment. <laughs> I think, yeah, most legislative leaders have said that there needs to be kind of a comprehensive look at those, that trio of issues, or I think it was maybe a duo yeah. or trio, trio, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> trio of issues um, heading into this next session. I mean, what I was going to say earlier about CPS is just this really, this report yesterday, these new numbers really ratchets up the pressure on, on lawmakers in January. Everyone agrees that this is an issue. I mean, Everyone has talked about how it's a, you know, a relatively nonpartisan issue. And so, I mean, let's, you know, I think it's really the onus is on them to really get something done now. Except right. this has been going on for as long as I've been covering the legislature. This has been a thing. I mean, I remember writing stories about kids sleeping in offices, you know, 10 years ago when I first right. started covering the legislature. It's, a, it's an old, old problem. Right. It's an old, old problem. When I first started covering the legislature low those many years ago, we were talking about conditions in um what were then called mental uh, state schools and, yeah. and mental health hospitals. I mean, you know, the state doesn't do its job here, and um, politicians have been pretty successful over the years getting the bureaucrats blamed for the shortcomings that start in the legislature. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, whether it was the Texas Youth Commission several years ago and the sort of right. scandal there, and then suddenly uh, conditions there were awful. You know, we've written about the state-supported living centers and the state psychiatric hospitals. It's like for the time that the media gives a lot of attention to these issues, you know, suddenly there's all this talk about reform and there are lawsuits and there's money thrown at it. And mm -hmm. then it's like five years later, we're back exactly where we started again. Right. Yeah.
That's depressing. Why, why do you think? I mean, do you think that lawmakers see these as like human problems and see like the humanity behind this, or do you think they just kind of go into the session and look at it as just like a budget issue? Like, let's just balance the budget. Like, as long as we can do that, cut taxes, we can brag about that, and then go home and say everything was well, it's, successful. It's largely a budget issue. We had a, a, a commissioner of what was then the Texas Department of Health, Eduardo Sanchez, a few years ago, who went in front of the legislature and said, I need money for this and this. And somebody in an appropriations hearing, he got in a bunch of trouble for this. Somebody said, well, what if we don't do that? And he said, people will die. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to hear it that way. They wanted to hear, what can you do with fewer resources? Um you know, that's uh, you have to confront the problem. You have to look at it and say, okay, what do we do? What's the acceptable amount of um, danger to children? You know, and go from that angle. Right. I mean, and it's virtually impossible to find to determine the statistic of these 1,000 kids who are high risk, 2,000 kids who are right. next to high risk. How many of those kids are actually being abused, injured? I mean, even killed in the times that they were supposed to be seen within this mandatory 24-hour window. Those are the stats that are never going to exist. Right. Because if you're not seeing kids, you know, you can't even you can't even count those figures. So, it's it is horrific. Yeah, and I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to start this session as a as a big issue. Uh, the question with the legislature, and, you know, part of this is they're responsive to voters. Politicians are responsive to voters. And if voters are not pressing them on a particular issue, that's not where their attention is going to be. This, this one right now uh, has a pretty good chance of getting attention. But when it recedes into the background a little bit, you know, when they get to the end of the session and pat themselves on the back, voters might let it fade. All right, well, in the last remaining minute, uh, any thoughts on the debate last night? I think that, uh, you know, I think Mike Pence won on, if you break this down, style and substance, mm-hmm. I think Mike Pence probably won on, on style. He came off a little more composed, I thought, than Tim Kaine did. I thought Tim Kaine was surprisingly uh, agitated looking at times, which goes against the kind of image he's cut throughout a lot of his political career as very calm and steady and the gentle dad. kind of boring in some <laughs> <Yeah>. ways. <laughs> uh, but I think on substance, though, and in terms of impact on the race, if, if, we, if we can even agree that there is an impact that vice presidential debates have on the race, um, I think Kane probably came out on top because he walked away with this talking point of Donald Trump is so unacceptable that even his running mate couldn't defend him on all mm-hmm. these controversial issues. And I think that's a probably a power, powerful argument that the Clinton campaign wants to press in these final days, final weeks. I think it's an unnoticed kind of a thing. You know, I think Pence won a fight. <laughs> I thought no- long and hard about my answer. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, Pence, Pence won a fight. Nobody watch. Yeah. Other than Patrick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that's all the time we have. Uh, if you'd like to uh, sign up for TribCast alerts, you can do it at texastribune.org slash TribCast. If you have questions or comments, you can email them to TribCast at texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Ross, Patrick, Brandon, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. I was a clown for Halloween when I was five.